Welcome to Voices of Baby Loss, presented by me, Caroline Verdon. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and Jen Coates, who is the Director of Bereavement Support and Volunteering at SANS. SANS is a UK-based charity whose purpose is to save babies' lives and support bereaved families. We also aim to give a voice to parents who've been touched by pregnancy and baby loss. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at SANS Charity, and on Twitter, at SANS UK which is also where you can get in touch with us if you'd like to comment on or get involved in the podcast. We are both touched by baby loss and so this topic is really close to our hearts. Coming up on this week's episode. My main job as a dad is to protect my baby. I'm crap at. I've not done that because my, my baby's my baby's dead. So what do I do now? Because I didn't physically carry Thomas, did I have a right to feel upset? Am I entitled to feel sad after more than one or two days? Hello and welcome to episode five. This week, we wanted to speak to partners because I think sometimes it can be quite easy to feel like you're getting left behind or your emotions aren't as important if you're not the person who's carrying the child. I think that's right. And it can be really easy for partners to focus on their partner who's given birth and naturally push their own needs aside Mm. to get through those really early days they end up being the person who had to tell everybody what's happened and I think their needs naturally just get subsumed into into those early days of grief and people make assumptions society makes assumptions about how they might feel about what's happened for this episode we wanted to speak to two people Pete and Shay about their experiences and we had intended to take little clips from our conversations with them and use them in this one episode but actually what they had to say was so powerful and so important we actually feel that it would be better to tell as much of their story as we can. So on this episode, we're going to hear from Pete and then next week we'll hear from Shay. Pete's held so many different roles at SANS. He has been a befriender with one of our SANS groups and he has fundraised for us endlessly, raised awareness and he is now the SANS United Men's Health and Wellbeing Coordinator. And I think he won't mind me saying he's also a model extraordinaire for all of our merchandise. And as soon as any new merchandise comes out, he buys it, models it and circulates photos, which is fantastic. I think for me, what struck me about talking to Pete was how long it took him to come forward and look for support for himself, especially given that, you know, as you say to him when we we chatted to him, you said um, if you cut him through the middle, he would be blue and orange. You know, (laughs) he encompasses everything about Sans. But it took him 10 years to actually come forward and look for support himself. I think actually it's also a story that a lot of people will resonate with because it sometimes does take a very long time for you to realise that actually perhaps you need a bit of help and support. Pete and Denise's son Thomas died in 2004. The baby was growing exactly the right rates and developing right. So we kind of sat there quite relaxed about things and having a bit of a laugh and joke. And then the sonographer comes in, starts to scan off and says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just having a bit of trouble finding the heartbeat of your baby. And I remember the heart has stopped and... I was sat on a on these tiny little stools next to Denise on the bed, but I remember sort of, you know, sitting up a bit straighter and, and paying a bit more attention and, and that whole grabbing hold of her hand and, and holding on trying. So I've got to get a doctor to help me find it. And at that point you don't know what that's code for. You sort of sat there thinking, She's having a bad morning finding baby's heartbeats. The doctor will come in and find it. So you don't know what that's code for, that that there is no heartbeat. So the, the doctor comes in and 
so it's from memory just very quickly did a scan and just, just turned to us and very bluntly just says, there's no heartbeat, your baby's dead. And I just remember at that point, it was a dark morning anyway, but the, the room just got darker and it just felt like all the air had been taken to me, punched me in the stomach and the air had gone out of me and just disintegrating into into tears and going from holding Denise's hands with both sort of hugging each other and literally just bawling our eyes out about it really. And then, then I realised, oh, put my mum's here. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm crying in front of my mum. It's like, nobody's looking after her. And I sort of happened to look over and the, very nicely the sonographer who was there had, had gone over to see my mum because my mum was quite upset as well. And then they they take you off into, uh, I think it's called the quiet room. And at the time it was just this tiny little room, magnolia paint around the walls, a couple of really uncomfortable chairs and a, a tea service in there. Just so stunned about what's happened. And they're talking about, right, we're going to, we'll admit you now, we'll induce you, we'll give you all the pain relief you need. I was still like saying, what is going on? You know, it's this... This, this can't be happening. And my wife is there saying, no, no, you, I'm not having the baby stay. And I was, I was starting to think, well, hang on, you've got to have the baby because is it going to make you poorly? You're not having the baby right now. And she's like, no, I, I'm, I've got to go home. I can't tell my dad this over the phone after what's happened recently. So I was thinking, I was, oh, I've got my mum with me. I've got to get her home as well. I sort of took mum and on the way home, I'm just trying to sort of compute what's happened, but also thinking about what do I do now? As a dad, my main job as a dad is to protect my baby. I'm crap at. I've not done that because my, my baby's my baby's dead. So what do I do now? And I, the first thing I decided to do is when we get to my mum and dad's house, I'm gonna. And I was driving. Thought I'm gonna get out of the car as quick as I can. I'm gonna go in the house and I'm gonna be the one that tells my dad. I'm not leaving it to my mum. I'm not leaving it to Denise to to tell him. And went in there because I what's the matter? And I, I started to tell him. And I remember I just broke down and he just grabbed hold of me and without physically being able to say what was happening. He, he understood what I was saying, luckily. And then so my mum come in and Denise come in, we just sort of quite quickly left. And somehow I drove back to to Western, sort of about a 45 minute drive. I managed to drive back crying all the way. I'm still not sure to this day how I managed to do that. Uh, we came in the house and Denise went to tell her, her dad that's something she needs to tell him. She knows how to speak to him better than, than I do. And again, I was just sort of, I felt a bit isolated in, in our living rooms today, there thinking, oh, what, what is it I do now? What, what's my role here? And, and back in early 2004, I, I, one thing I'm kind of grateful for is it was it was pre-social media. I just sort of picked up the phone and started ringing people and telling people that, that, we, that our baby had died. And it was the last thing that needed doing, but it was the only thing I could think to do at the time. Um, mm-hmm. So we spent that weekend with like a thousand and one questions, but not knowing who to ask. It's things like, were we allowed to take photos of our baby on our baby's board? Also at 27 weeks, we had no idea what our, our baby would look like. Would would our baby look like a baby or would our baby be sort of quite underdeveloped and, and not really look like a baby and not knowing how long it would take. And, and again, silly, it kind of, it seemed like silly things at the time, but it's, it's just, what do we need to take into hospital? You know, I'm thinking, well, well, I know they'll they'll feed and water Denise for as long as we're in there, but they're not going to feed me and water me, I, I, I guess. So we got sort of got through the weekend. We're just trying to talk these things through between ourselves. Nobody had given us Sans information that we could pick up the phone and ring somebody at Sans and say, look, do you know what we can what we can do? Or even say, like, here's a number at the hospital. Here's somebody to ring to, or is a help on you can ring about it. So we went back to the hospital on the Monday morning. And I remember it seems 
really silly now. But I think into myself, well, what can I get myself to eat and drink to keep me going? And I remember I went and bought two Mars bars and two bottles of LucasAid Sport. I thought, that's it. I'll power through the professional way with chocolate and isotonic drinks. And got to the hospital and we have to go through the main door for the, the delivery suite. You sort of press the button and they ask us, there you go. We're like, Denise Spire, I'm here to, to deliver our baby. And you, you walk through the main area, the sort of the main reception of the, the delivery suite there. And all the midwives there, they know what you're there for. And it just seems just go deathly quiet as you as you, as you walk through. And you, you know they're looking at you. And we went into, took into, into one of the delivery suites, induced my wife and sort of through the day, you had different people coming in. And again, I, I felt quite isolated there because in my mind, quite rightly, the doctors and the midwives were, they were looking after my wife and, and my baby. But there was still part of me, I was sat in a chair in a corner thinking, hello, it's, you know, it's, it, it's not wanting to sort of to to stick my oar in and get chucked at the hospital because I started asking questions and just sort of trying to be be quiet and, and ask a question. I thought asking a question would be the right thing to do, but just sort of generally listening and sort of wait for the day goes on and the, the chaplain comes in and asks, you know, what would you like to to do with your baby after? And we sort of talked through the options and it was nice, but it's kind of weird. The, the funeral was all, was all done and organised before she gave birth. That was, you know, by lunch, by the time they brought any sandwiches for lunch, we knew what date the funeral was and that our, our baby's going to be buried with, with my mother-in-law. And then later, I think just before 10 o'clock, uh, my wife, if you know her, she, she can sort of be very direct sometimes and just uh, uh, kind of had enough of the whole day and just like, right, I'm delivering the baby now. And just got up on the bed and delivered the baby and I caught the baby coming out. And then I was sort of there with my with our little baby in, our, in my hands and like, right, what do I do now? So just very gently put put the baby down on the bed and go and press the call. I didn't press the emergency, didn't think to press the emergency button, just press the the sort of the non-emergency thing for somebody to come in and the sort of midwife pops her around the door. Is anything okay? I went, yeah, so I just did the baby and she started running rushing around then the midwife and then um sort of cut the cord and and that was the thing, I didn't cut the cord, but I didn't I didn't think to ask her again, I didn't think I'd be allowed to to do something which is quite a bad thing to do to cut the cord. Mm. And uh so she t- took our baby away, came back, uh, 10 minutes later it might have been, uh, they'd cleaned our baby up and I had a good cry in that in that time. And I was just like, just, just feeling so proud of Denise, of, of how she, she coped the day so far. And um, she brought our baby back and told us we'd had a son. And we, I think that we actually discussed things, but just very quickly, we just, we decided to call our son Thomas. And we were sort of sat there, using this tiny little basket. And again, we sort of, you know, can we take photos? We're not. So we, did, we didn't take any photos because we didn't think we'd be allowed to. Didn't want to get told off for taking photos if it was the wrong thing to do. And then we were sort of thinking, oh, have we only got a certain amount of time with our baby? So we thought, right, rather than the midwife coming and say, right, that's it, your time's up now, we're going to take your baby away. We just after, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes just decided, right, we'll call her in and say, can you kind of take, take away now and make it be our, to be on our terms and our, our decisions to do it. So she came and took Thomas away, and then we uh, then we found out there was a bereavement suite. So they sort of then we had a shower and took us down to the bereavement suite. So that you know there's a bed for you to stay in, and that's when we we kind of got our introduction to Sands. There's always a leaflet over there on the table for you, and the leaflet at that time was it was two pieces of A4 paper folded in half with bits of information on about Sands, about Bristol Sands. I just couldn't take it in. It wasn't. It's something I come across not so long ago when we were going through some 
bits of paperwork and that. I, I don't remember seeing it at the time. So yeah, we did that and we were we were there that night and then the next day they'd arranged for us to have a naming ceremony at the hospital chapel. And I, I don't remember a lot of that. Thomas was in a, a tiny little crib in the chapel and because it was such a tiny crib, both Denise and me, we, we sat holding hands underneath the crib whilst the, the chaplain did the service and I just, I just, I just cried throughout the whole service. Like I started and I was, I had the little leaflet with the service on and I just couldn't see it the rest of the time because I was crying um, so much. Again, it's, you know, I think it's a perfectly natural thing to do. And then, so we had another day or so in the bereavement suite and then went home and uh, the funeral a couple of, a couple of weeks later. There's so much of yours and Thomas's story that is so upsetting to hear outside of of what actually happened but not knowing if they were going to kick you out after 15 minutes and mm. not knowing if you were able to take a photograph and not wanting to do the wrong thing I remember those things vividly of what am I allowed to do and I remember mm. saying am I allowed to pick him up and yeah. the midwife looked at me in the night in the kindest possible way as if I was crazy. <laughs> and she was like, of course, you know, he's your baby, you know, you can, you know, and she went through everything. But mm. I do think there is that kind of expectation that you kind of know what to do. And actually in these situations, you just want to do the right thing. That's it. It was a bad situation. And I thought I didn't want to make the situation worse by yeah. upsetting people. And I, I'd, I'd been aware because we, we spent so much time at the hospital in the, the previous few months with, with Denise in hospital there was times when I sat at the side of the bed biting me, biting my tongue because of what the doctor was saying. I wanted to jump in, but I thought, no, they're going to think you're a gobby person and you've got no real right to be here. They can, at any point, they can say, look, mate, you're done. Get out. You can ring a once day sort of things. So I was, whereas nowadays I, I would be less like that. I would, I, I would endeavor not to be rude, but I would, I've learned to be sort of more forward with asking questions in, in particularly medical situations. Uh, but at that time, I didn't want to upset Denise by saying the wrong thing and making a, a bad situation worse and, and by upsetting the hospital staff. And after you'd delivered Thomas, after you, Denise had delivered Thomas, what was the support like then for you? Was there any? No, not really. Um, the sounds was, was around then, but I just didn't. The, the leaflet went in the bag. If I got support, it was it was from Denise that we being lucky that I'd lost my job once we got home after having Thomas we just spent a lot you know literally 24 7 together Denise she was on maternity leave from from her job because she got past the 24 weeks the, that that sort of mark and so we spent a lot of time supporting each other you know, a lot of the time was spent just sitting there holding hands and watching telly and you know we got into a sort of a, a habit of we'd stay up really late you know sort of three o'clock in the morning watching rubbish on literally and it was that you're watching rubbish on telly and then go to bed and a couple of times I woke up and I sort of you know wake up and I'd, I'd sit up and I was like I love a dream I had last night it was so vivid and then you remember no it wasn't a dream it was it was real that our, our baby had died but it, it was interesting finding out the I don't say who my friends were but who were the ones that would kind of stick around there were the people I I thought the, the, the mates I thought might ring me or even like text me and, and didn't. I heard nothing from. And, but by sort of the other side of the coin, there was, I remember there was a guy, a, a husband of a, a, a friend of, of ours who I'd, I'd rung his wife the day we found out that, that Thomas was died. 
and I, I rang and told his wife because we we worked together through us worked together about an hour or so later the phone went I picked it up and it was it was him and he, he said how you doing mate I went no Denise is not too bad I said you know he went no 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 you're not listening he said how are you and he, he was one of the only people at that time that asked me how I was and it was it was very surprising because a, a few weeks before when Denise was taken into hospital I, I'd rung rung up one evening to tell his wife what was happening and he answered the phone he said how's it going Peter I said oh I said, oh, mate, I said, it's a nightmare. I said, did he see the hospital? He went, hang on a minute, mate. He said, no, no. He said, four thoughts of refusal. He said, here's, here's, here's the wife, tell her. Um, so, <laughs> and I can't know, because I knew him, it wasn't a personal thing. It just made me laugh at the time, which is what I needed to say. But then for him to ring me to this day still still means a lot. But, you know, so at the time, the support was very much uh, between me and my wife. And there were, there were times I know that I, in those early days and weeks and, and months where I felt really low and, but I could see that oh, it was a day that Denise didn't seem to be doing too bad, so I didn't want to burden her. So I just thought, right, I'll, I'll shut up, I'll paint a smile on, and we'll go about our day, whatever we're doing. So at the time, I'm trying to support myself as well. Do you think that is because you weren't the person carrying Thomas, you weren't physically pregnant, or do you think that's because of the way in which and perhaps times are changing, but the way in which men were taught to behave. I think it's probably a bit of both. I th- I, part of it would probably be sort of a reflection that because I didn't physically carry Thomas, it was almost where did, did, I have a, did I have a right to feel upset after more than one or two days. I hadn't carried him and had all the, the, the physical sort of manifestation of doing that and, and the delivering him. It was, am I entitled to feel sad after more than a couple of days? When a, an elderly relative or a, a parent of someone dies, that you know you get past if you're a day or two past if you're on this, it's almost like right back to normal now, everything's okay. It was almost like that sort of thing where we buried someone's now. I've, I'm the bloke, I've kind of I've not got the right to do it, you know. But you know, as, as sexist and as stupid sounds like, you know, my wife can cry every day if she wants, but no, not me, I'm, I'm not allowed to. And I think it's, it's partly a how does that feeling of how you're meant to be as, as a bloke growing up as well. So I think it's, it's a bit of both. There's a real sense in what you're saying and, and what other people have said as well around needing help to navigate. And it feels that understanding what you can do and what you can't do, but knowing that you're sadly not the first people to tread this path mm. and that you're not alone and that there is a way to navigate it is is really important, especially in those early days. Yeah, Definitely, and there's that, it's that sort of distance of time that it, it does make you realise that, that it's, it's okay to, to do that. It's interesting as well that you say that, you know, there was a leaflet there, but you don't really remember it. And it's only 14 years later when you yeah. were, you know, clearing through some stuff that you found it again. Um, and it's interesting to me because I think I was like this. I think there possibly was more support there that would have mm. I would have been able to access but I was not in that brain space to be able to reach out or to want to talk to and have to tell the story and to <laughs> I just wanted to kind of cocoon myself and just just never leave the house you know that yeah. was that was the immediate goal um but what is it that for you made the difference that 14 years later when you found the leaflet why did you do something with it well, the leaflet. It was it was only a year or two ago that I, I came across. I, I sort of came across it. But for in, in terms of reaching out for support, uh, I for for a little while, for probably a year or two, sort of going back, sort of two thousand and sixteen, two thousand and seventeen. There's a couple of times I'd 
sort of toyed with the idea. I thought, do you know, what? I think I need support, uh, and how do I get it? And I'd sat in work and because of where I sit in work, nobody can see my screen. So I could look for information on stillbirths and, and, and find the sands and nobody look over my shoulder and, and see it or at home be sat on my phone doing it and, you know, be like, what's that you're looking at? And almost sort of where I might feel embarrassed or ashamed that I thought that I needed to get, again, being a bloke and, as it turns out, being a bit of an idiot, that sort of being ashamed, is it a, a sign of weakness that I need to find support? And I, I found out that Bristol Sands was my, my local support group. I thought, that's, that's nice, you know, it's, you know, 40 minute drive from where I live. Um, and that they did the support meetings. And as a couple of months, I, a couple of times I said to these, I think I'm going to go. And she was like, yeah, great. That's, that's fine. Love you. Get and go. My wife had gotten her support in two weeks. Firstly, through her, or sort of ongoing kidney failure. She was, um, by the time she's on dialysis permanently, we, a, a year later, we were, we were very fortunate to have a son who's 17 years old now, but her refusal to have dialysis while she was pregnant with him had meant that when she had him, she was on dialysis for, sort of forever, really. And because that she got some psychological support through the hospital for that, but also she joined the local church. She has a, a faith and it's not, I, I don't have a faith at the minute. So she'd got to support that. And I kind of find Bristol Sands and I was like, Oh yeah, I'll go to a meeting. As, as the, the meeting got closed, I bought it out of doing it because what I, I was afraid of doing was turning up at a meeting, being the only bloke there in what I would imagine to be a room full of, of three mums sitting there blubbing my eyes out and then getting like the women thinking, what a wuss. And eventually what sort of pushed me over to, to do it is I I'd started running to try and improve my health. And on, on a whim, I thought, I'll run the Bristol 10K. That's going to be easy to do. Said no one ever. <laughs> and, in, and in five attempts, I've never ever thought that as I crossed the finish line. And I decided, <laughs> I decided to do it. I, I sort of followed the Bristol Sands social media pages, and they were looking for people to join the team to run for Bristol Sands. I thought, you know, what, I'll do it, and I'll, I'll see if I can get some sponsorships to do it, with no anticipation that it would lead to to where I am today, sort of thing. And you know, went along, did it, got around the course. I remember sort of being quite emotional as I crossed the finish line. I'd done it and was running with my Sands t-shirt on and on the number I had written Thomas's name. So I was doing it with Thomas. And uh, it was later that night, I was flicking through their their Facebook, looking at the photos on there and that. And literally, it was a comment on a photo that somebody had made. And it was it was along the lines of, you know, it was a, it was a great event, a lovely day. So reassuring to be amongst a group of people with a shared experience and understand the pain and grief we've gone through. And for me, it was just like, it was almost that like light bulb moment. I thought, I need to be among these people more. I, I need to do, I realised I need to do something. And and by chance, I think it was about two weeks later, there was a support meeting. I was determined, I was like, right, I'm going to it. I'm, you know, nothing has stopped me. And even then, I was still in the point where I thought, well, nobody knows me in there. I can still just drive away. And I just, just whether, you know, I look at him and think now Thomas was there, sort of kicking me out of the car and pushing me through the door. And by chance, it was a, a guy there who was sort of on the door. I said, oh, is this the, the, the sounds? He said, yeah, come on in. And it was just like, it was a sort of really warm, safe welcome. And I just thought, it was almost like, God, I read that post the other week because I, I wouldn't have wouldn't have turned up here. And just to that, I remember that first support meeting, listeners, they go around the room and people are sharing their experiences. And I was all taking deep, sort of as quiet as I could do in a, in a, a small room with a lot of people and taking deep breaths, sort of stealing myself for to share my my story and they got round to me and I remember I couldn't tell you what I said it just like just all came out but just felt so relieved after and I thought right I need to I need to do this again and, and again and I, you know don't think I've missed a meeting since but yeah it was just that run 10k got me into 
going to, to, <laughs> to find that support that I needed. So, And since then, you have become so involved. Yeah, I think my wife might think sometimes it's a bit obsessive. My my involvement is I almost got like... Do you think? Everything. Yeah, I think she... Yeah, <laughs> I think... He's actually she's blue and orange down the middle, aren't you? Now, she's a, she, yeah, she's, yeah. I live at the seaside, and the, the rock down there is like Western Supermare in the middle. I think I've got blue and orange in the middle. So, um, <laughs> to the point that you know, any if I buy a a, a blue polo shirt or a, a blue sweatshirt, it invariably finds its way to a local printer to have the badge and Thomas's name and my my shirt number on it, and the, the, the team I play for. Um, so, yeah, I, I I think I felt initially that I had to make up for lost time in processing my grief and, and and getting on that journey whereas if, if I would have spread that over 18 years it probably wouldn't look so obsessive now my fondness for for Sands and everything Sands United as well but in in that sort of short space of time in those you know just over four years now a lot happened quite quickly that I you know was fortunate that got a really warm and, and was made very welcome by the, the defenders at Bristol Sands it was somewhere I felt comfortable being myself and didn't um, have to worry about was I going to upset somebody by talking about Thomas or, or, or sharing my story and that this was a place that I could. It wasn't just that if I was in work and somebody knew was in the kitchen making a cup of coffee and they sort of, you know, they'd have asked that question. So, oh, yeah, how many children you got? And think, well, you're, I'd like, pal, you've asked the question, you're getting the answer now. I just, you know, just felt comfortable. And in sort of the baby loss community, when you, when you lose your baby, you, you, you can find yourself almost in a country that you don't know well, you don't know the language, but by going to a sound support group, I find a sort of a tiny little bit of land where people speak my language. And then through getting involved with sounds, there's a bigger area of people that, that speak your language as well. And just for me, I, I think getting that initial support and I, I felt comfortable enough not long after I wanted to to give back, just even if those, those first few months of, of going to support meetings that the support I got have been been massive and been invaluable just to, to be able to talk about Thomas as, as much and as free as I wanted that I wanted to be able to show other people they could so to, to be, become a befriender was the sort of the natural next step really. And as a befriender, what's what's your role? So each support group they have their their support meetings and some of the support groups they, they just do one a month. Others they would do like pregnancy after loss uh support meetings as well and some do, do dad's meetings as well and for me being a befriender is to be able to to show to other people that it's it's okay to open up is giving them that safe space is that you know they might have read online that when you go to support group it is a, a warm safe space but to show them that it, it really is that warm safe mm-hmm. space that they've they've got that opportunity there's that that space that, that we're holding for them where they can talk about their baby or babies as as much as they want as, as little as if they just if it's their first meeting and they feel comfortable they just all they feel comfortable is, is just saying their name that's absolutely fine if they want to take 10 minutes and sort of go into a lot of detail about the experience that's also fine that we, you know we're gonna be there we're gonna be we, we'll listen to them and we'll and we'll support them what whilst they're doing it and it's say this is is that space where yeah if you want to cry you can cry but please don't apologize that you're crying so as to to, to give that space for them to sort of that that's those steps on their grief journey i just i feel sort of very very privileged to to be a befriender and that people want to share their stories with us and um as befrienders and, and you know we get to to know to know them we get to know their babies as well and their baby stories are the support groups only for people who have lost a child themselves or are they for grandparents or aunts uncles yeah. 
I mean, pr- predominantly, from, from my experience with support groups, predominantly it will be the parents and mum and the dad that attend them, but they, the support groups are there for anybody who's, who's been affected by baby loss. So uh, I've, I've, I've been in support meetings where the grandparents have been there. I've heard that sort of anecdotally of, of other family members that, that go to support meetings because of how they, they've been affected. They've been very close to somebody. It's there for anybody. And, and not just family members, you know, if you was, was talking to somebody about the, the signs like a football team the other day who, who sort of thought it was just for dads and said, no, it's not just for dads, you know, you know dads, brothers, uncles, cousins, grandfathers. But if you're a guy who works in a NICU and have been affected by the death of a baby there, it's there for you. It's there for anybody who needs it. We have some amazing um, grandparent befrienders around the country as well. Mm. And I think that provides a really different perspective too. I was just talking to two grannies very recently and both saying, it's like a double grief. You're grieving for your child that you feel you've lost. They've changed forever and you've, you're grieving for your grandchild as well. So mm. I've, I've been to events as well where I've heard sort of, you know, representing the Sands or Sands events where I've spoken to a couple who that their, their baby had died, but they're there with family members. And then sort of 10 minutes later, because you know, with the Sands t-shirt, the Sands lan- lanyard on, you know, granny has come along and said, it brought back so many memories for me from when I lost my baby, but I've not told them. Or, you know, this is the first time I've spoken about the, the loss of my, my daughter and my son in 40, 50, 60 years, however long it, it's been. So it brings up a lot of emotions for people. Am I right? Did you set up the Bristol Sands United Football Club? Yeah, I did. So it was sort of baby loss awareness week four years ago. I remember seeing online the video from the, the Sands United Northampton team with the, the original first Sands United football team. They put together this very sort of really powerful video and it was on the theme of, of still a dad because one thing, not just particularly to dads, but also to, to, to bereaved mums as well is that if, like for, for me, uh, Thomas was our first son, it sadly passed away before he was born. So I struggled with the fact that I was still a dad, even though, though I hadn't taken Thomas home, I'd left him at the hospital and I buried him. It, it, it took me a while to, to recognize that I was a dad. My wife and I decided to go on holiday a couple of months after, and we we'd gone over to, to North America. We we flew to Boston first of all, and then we went to Canada and stayed with family. We the night we arrived in Boston, we got to a hotel. And we were sat in the restaurant and having something to eat, and it was on a Saturday night. My wife says, "Sure, what time is it now?" So I said, oh, "It's just gone seven in the evening." She said, "What time is it back home?" I said, "We're well, five hours ahead, so it's just gone midnight." So it's sun, it's you know, early minutes of Sunday morning, and that particular Sunday morning back in the UK was Father's Day. And she slid an envelope across the table to me and it was a Father's Day card from Thomas. And that was probably the first time that I felt like I could call myself a dad. Flash forward to sort of 2018, I saw this video and it was the guys in the team were filmed holding up things like little baby grows and little teddies that they, they bought in anticipation of the arrival of their babies. And that the sort of the tagline along it was reminding them they're still a dad and it, you know, really sort of struck a chord in me sort of thinking about those, those 14 years or so previously. And I sort of just became interested in it and sort of started following them. And I started, when I get into something, like I get quite obsessed and want to find out a lot about stuff about it. And I found out, oh, there's a shop I can buy a Sands United woolly hat. So I went and bought a woolly hat and a scarf. And then I sort of, I suppose it was in the, it was early 2019. I thought, do you know what? There's going to be a need for one of these things in Bristol. I think and I, I go to support meetings and there can be a dozen or so bereaved mums there. And for a lot of them, they'll still be with the, the guys, that are the, the dads, these babies, and thinking, where are they getting support? They never come along to these meetings. So I thought, right, okay, I'll, I'll start one up. And there was a, a couple of guys I 
I knew through Sans, whose wife's on the committee, so I got to know them at sort of Christmas services and stuff like that. And I think some of them got told by their wives that, right, you've got to join the football team that are starting now. So I sort of got a few guys straight away. But yeah, we we started the, the, the sort of like the, the Sands United Bristol team in sort of early 2019. And you weren't a football man at all? I'm a rugby man. I don't like football particularly, but you know, <laughs> football's the. <laughs> But I, I, what I know about football is what I, what I hear in the office in, 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 in my, in my other job with them talking about, uh, football and what their teams done at weekends. That's, that's sort of pretty much nowadays where my knowledge of football runs to. So I am a, a rugby man, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, football's, a, football's the biggest sport in the country. So that's, that's the way forward for doing it. And besides, I, I wouldn't have wanted to start playing full contact rugby in the early 40s. <laughs> and what does the team bring to you and to others? For me, it's, it's that, the way I like it is um, my mum and dad gave me a brother who's three years younger than me through Thomas and, the, and because of the Sands United Bristol football team I've got 40 more brothers that are there and they're supportive and, and you know, we'll, if, I, if I message they're there with a supportive message or a phone call whenever you need it. What a lovely man and proof as well that the support will be there for you doesn't matter if that loss was yesterday or 50 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And I really hope that people who maybe haven't got support now know or having listened to Pete know that it isn't too late and we're always here if you want to reach out. I think that's really important as well because it can perhaps quite easily feel that, well, it hasn't happened yesterday, I should be over it by now. Mm. And it just doesn't work that way, does it? It really doesn't. And things hit at very different times, don't they? And we may need a certain type of support early on and different support later. Now, as we said, um, we had hoped to include Shay in this episode, but Pete and Shay just had so much to say in such an eloquent way. So um, we want to tell Shay, Abby and Magnus's story on next week's episode. So that's what you can expect coming up right now, though, uh, as we near the end of this episode, as we always do, we like to finish off by asking for people's hopes for the future. So these are Pete's. I suppose my hope for the future is that although I know Denise and me are not going to be the last parents to have to experience a, a stillbirth, that we just hope we're close as a day when it doesn't happen to make sure those numbers are, are as low as possible. But in in sort of in concert with that, to to try and do what I can do in my small corner to make sure that the support is there for somebody who needs it. Don't feel that you're on your own because you're not. Just reach out for that support. Voices of Baby Loss is an under-the-mast creative audio production.